Welcome to Killing Time. It's me, Jack. I just wanted to pop on here really quick to let you know our regular Killing Times are going to be back in action on February 8th. That's in two weeks from today. They're going to be better than ever. We are revamping the whole thing. It's going to be great. So we can't wait to see you then. And of course, we're not going to leave you hanging. We are giving you one of our exclusive Patreon episodes today to listen to. And if you want more, We'll give you a lot more on our Patreon. If you want to join us in the Firsty Underground, we have almost two years of banked episodes, so you will not run out of things to listen to with our two lovely voices. So without further ado, here's your episode, and we'll see you soon. The Second Degree Welcome to The Second Degree, your double dose of depravity. It's Jack here with Alexis. Jared is behind me right now. He was just scrounging through the refrigerator, I think, trying to find a snack. But little does he know we have no food. (laughs) Typical Jared. I see him just in the background looking looking around. Hoping for a crumb, but... (laughs) You know, you there guys are no- aren't like the grocery store shopping, cook your meals type a couple. You're just no, not. No, I mean, we're just never home. So any groceries that we buy go bad. So then it's really just a waste of money. So that's where we, but then we have no food to snack on, unfortunately. Mm. It hurts. Yeah, sure does. Like How in the are morning. you doing today, Lex? I'm chilling. We're I'm chilling. like eating a bagel here. Well, not eating it. It's sitting in front of me because I. I'm not going to eat and work, but I got a little mimosa here. It's a it's a Sunday morning, everyone. So yeah. we're working overtime as per usual to bring you what you crave, which is true crime. More true crime. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Do we want to just get into today, today's episode? Do we have anything to talk about other than that? Other than that, we love everybody here supporting us. This is another listener submitted story. Yes. Um. I think the last several we've done are, and we're going to continue to do that as long as the suggestions keep coming. So we really enjoy doing this. We like being able to bring you what you want without the necessary interview to actually research it because that's obviously our format for our first degree. So yep. yeah, we're just – thank you guys for being here. Thanks for sticking with us. Yeah, we love you so much. Love you. All right. Let's jump into today's case. We are going back to Wednesday, January 9th of 2002. And on this day, Michael Jackson received the Artist of the Century honor at the American Music Awards. The top song was How You Remind Me by Nickelback, Alexis's dad's favorite band. Favorite song, probably. <laughs> that never the, He likes the rock star one. We're all just going to be big rock stars. I don't even know if I know that song. Yeah, it's a take like between those two. It's like dad uh- rock. Okay, not photograph. Yeah. Is that knuckle? That's Creed, or it might Look be knuckle back. Photograph. All right. Um, so, anyways, <laughs> the other top songs were "You Got It Bad" by Usher and "Family Affair," "Family Affair" by Mary J. Blige. Wow, look at me. At the movie, classics like "Not Another Teen Movie" and "Ali" were in theaters. The setting for today's case is Oregon City, Oregon. In 1829, the Hudson Bay Company built several paper mills in the area, which helped draw people and economy to Oregon City. 
1844, it was the first city to be incorporated west of the Rocky Mountains. This area was also the last spot on the Oregon Trail. So we did a deep dive on the Oregon Trail for a killing time a while ago. Oh God. Very interesting piece of history. And interesting computer game. If you're oh. of our generation, um, you're dealing with cholera in that game. You're dealing with rancid Syphilis. meat. You're dealing with uh, a wheel on your covered wagon. A broken axle. Off. It really is harrowing and highly recommend if they still make it. I know. I mean, just a piece of all of our childhood. And also <laughs> the, episode, the episode of Killing Time was so fucking funny. So so funny. But like I really think about pioneers of that era like actually trying to travel across it's the insane. Plains. It I looks wouldn't do it. So awful. I can't believe we ever got here. It's pretty insane. No, thank Manifest you. Manifest destiny, baby. That's right. Okay. So the case that we have today is from a, one of our firsties, like we were talking about, and her name is Angie. Angie, thank you for writing in. Um, and we're glad that we got to cover this case. So Angie grew up in the area and remembers hearing about Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis. So Ashley and Miranda were both born in Oregon City, where they became friends. They both attended Gardner Middle School, and they were on the same dance team and lived in the same apartment complex. So they were obviously very close friends. 12-year-old Ashley was born on March 1st of 1989, and her friends called her Ash. And Miranda was 13 years old. She was born on November 18th of 1988. And we're looking at pictures of them, and they look like they would be best friends. Like, they look similar but different. Um, yeah. And they, in a couple photos, they have what I used to do in middle school, these two little gelled like antenna bangs that you would put on each side of your face. And unfortunately, people are doing that again. Well, like the yeah. tiny, the tiny little strands, the tiny little two strand bangs. I'll post my yearbook picture. I have hair just like this in my yearbook picture. Yeah, I think that we all did. I don't know what it was about, but I feel like Ashley was a little bit more of maybe like the sporty one of the two. And then Miranda in one of these pictures is has an emo vibe. She's wearing oh, like hundred percent a netted long sleeve black shirt with a white graphic tee that like almost looks like it says emo. It probably doesn't. And then like these cargo gray camo. cargo pants. With, like, or, camo yeah, print. camo pants. Yeah. And then um, Ashley has on one of those little tattoo necklaces. I have one of those in the same yearbook picture that I was referencing. This is very like – Very I mean, we're of only, times. We're only a couple years older than them. So that's not yeah. – that's surprising, right? Yeah. So the two friends shared a lot of similarities beyond what we both talked about just now. And sadly, beyond sharing similar circumstances, they both also grew up in troubled households, which is really sad. So on the heels of learning this new information about her biological father, Ashley tried to establish a relationship with him. But tragically, after reconnecting with her father, he too became abusive. This is so fucking unbelievable. So fucked up. And sexually abused her regularly. On Christmas Eve of the year 2000, Ashley turned him into the police and Wesley was charged on 40 counts of rape and sexual assault. So again, this just keeps getting worse. The, the, she was only 12. Um, and it's really heartbreaking and, her, and hard to talk about. Yeah. And her two father figures have betrayed her. It's yeah. just unreal. It's unbelievable. And the worst thing about it was Wesley got away with just a plea deal. He was registered as a sex offender and pleaded no contest to one count of attempted penetration. I just like want to throw up talking about this. And it only landed him 10 years of probation. So unbelievable circumstances for these girls growing up. Yeah. And it's just, you know, men 
in these fucked up situations, I mean, first of all, I don't want to victim blame or anything like that, but like this is either a case of the mom picking pieces of shit or you know how you hear if you've been a victim once, like the likelihood of it happening again occurs. It's because you're so emotionally beaten down that the per- like the next person thinks that they can take advantage or whatever. It's just fucking sickening. Like this girl, she's 12 as the story takes place. When these things happen, she was probably even younger, you know? So oh yeah. yeah. It's unthinkable. It's unbelievable. So despite the terrible circumstances that these two young girls were put through, Ashley and Miranda tried to live normal teenage lives. They made friends with other girls that they had things in common with, and one of them was Mallory Weaver. So Mallory went to the same school, and she was on their dance team and happened to live down the street from the apartment complex with her own family. So these three girls at this point are like practically inseparable. Mallory would invite Ashley and Miranda over constantly, and at one point, Ashley stayed at the Weaver family for an entire month to avoid her own family troubles. So that brings us to the morning of January 9th, which was supposed to be just like any other. Ashley was notorious for waking up late to go to school. I mean, I was notorious for that too. And her sister actually regularly made sure to wake Ashley up so that she wouldn't be late. And once she was awake, Ashley got ready and said goodbye to her mother and started walking towards her bus stop. The bus stop wasn't far, just down the road that led to the apartment complex. However, when the bus arrived there was no sign of Ashley. The bus driver didn't think it was out of the ordinary because, again, Ashley always woke up late for school and would have to be driven to school, so it wasn't that odd. And no one really thought much of it. You know, Ashley's family thought she'd gone to school. The bus driver thought she had slept in. But when Ashley did not return home from school that day, that's obviously cause for concern. And that's when her mother reported her missing. So Oregon City Police, along with the FBI, started investigating immediately, but they really didn't have that much to go off of. All they knew is that they were dealing with a case of a missing child who never showed up for the school bus. No one had seen Ashley from the time she walked out of her door to when the bus would have arrived. So investigators set up roadblocks around the area, stopping random drivers to ask them about Ashley. They searched as many cars as they could, and they handed out flyers asking for any possible tip. And meanwhile, the community also stepped in to help as well. The dance team Ashley was a part of organized a fundraiser to go towards search efforts. And Miranda talked to reporters about how scary the whole situation was. It's really hard to believe that having a one of your friends or something, it's just really different and really sad. So despite the immediate police action taken in the case, there was no sign of Ashley in the days following her disappearance. The radio silence persisted for more than a week until January 18th rolled around. And that's when police interviewed Mallory's father, Ward Weaver. And they did so because Ashley spent so much time with this family. They wondered if maybe he knew something. In fact, some mornings, Ward Weaver would drive the girls to school when he left for work. Also, their house was right next to the bus stop. So it turns out when they questioned Ward, he said that he'd been home on the morning Ashley went missing. He remembered that he was trying to fix his burglar alarm around that time. But while he was there fixing that, he said he didn't see anything or notice anything. Police ultimately searched the home for potential evidence, but there was nothing. In the days that followed, detectives would learn more about Ward Weaver. It turns out, months prior, in August 2001, Ashley had actually accused Ward of attempting to rape her. Ashley had confided in a teacher, telling them that Whenever she stayed with the Weavers, 
Ward would normally, quote, sleep on top of her. Okay. So this was reported to the police, but they didn't follow through properly, nor did they investigate the allegation well at the time. Plus, Ward denied that it happened, so nothing ever came of it. This is a fucking red flag. Um, And it would take police down a rabbit hole of Ward's history of abuse and assault. And this wasn't just his history. His family had histories of abuse that are kind of unbelievable. This case was about to unlock secrets of a very dark family past. And um, it'll blow your mind. So you know the deal by now. We've got to go back. Ward Weaver III was born on April 6th of 1963. He was originally from Humboldt County, California, and raised in a rough household himself. By the time he was four, his parents divorced, and his father, William Weaver Jr., was drafted into the Army and sent to Vietnam. By 1975, his mother remarried a man named Bob Budrow. Bob was a drunk who would leave 12-year-old Ward by himself regularly. Bob would also return home and take his anger out on his wife. So Ward's stepfather wasn't the best influence, especially for such a young and impressionable kid. And if you can believe it, Ward's actual father was even worse than his stepfather. After returning home from the Army, Ward Jr. worked as a truck driver. In 1981, near the Mojave Desert, he killed a couple who was pulled over on the side of the road when they were having car trouble. The couple was 18-year-old Air Force recruit Robert Radford and 23-year-old Barbara Lavoie. The two were engaged. And while helping them with the car, Ward Jr. asked Robert to help him with something in the back of his truck. And that's when Ward Jr. hit the man with the metal bar, killing him. Then he kidnapped Barbara, raped her, and took her to his house where he tied her to a tree. Barbara fought back. And Ward Jr. didn't like that, so he strangled her. Holy shit. That is some – what is wrong with people? Oh, my God. Like – Oh, cool. Like this couple is just having car trouble and your impulse is to pull over, pretend to help them and kill them. Like I'll never understand minds like this. Like it's why we do true crime because these people terrify me. I mean, it's like, and for something like that, it's like, there's no motive. It's like, you're just, you just rant. Yeah. It's like, you have no, it's, oh God. It's awful. Um, and Barbara, was buried three separate times before Ward Jr. finally buried her in his own backyard. And he topped the grave with a concrete slab and built a deck on top of that. In 1984, he was convicted for their murders and put on death row. Ward Jr. even tried to finagle a plea deal by confessing to 26 other murders, some of which aligned with his route as a truck driver. And it's unclear what happened with those, whether they were investigated or conclusively tied to him. Regardless, Thankfully, the prosecutors didn't take the deal. Um, holy shit. Like, my mind goes to two different places. Like, he's lying and he's that fucked up or he's a serial killer. And we, this is a serial killer we don't know about. I know. 26 murders. Like, holy shit. I know. Wow. So as shocking and crazy as Ward Jr.'s crimes are, it turns out that crime in the Weaver family started even a generation before him. So a court petition stated that Ward Sr. sexually assaulted his wife, Dorothy, and he assaulted other women as well when Dorothy would not have sex with him. He also raped his daughter and his two granddaughters as well. My God, these people. Monsters. According to Ward Jr., Dorothy apparently beat her children and said that all men should be castrated. 
So this is obviously a generational influence of abuse among this family. Like it's really absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. So we're going to pivot back to Ward the third and the investigation into Ashley's disappearance. So Ward was is Mallory's dad. We're going back to the original story that we're telling. So when Ward the third was in high school, a female relative accused Ward of raping her and no charges were filed. Prosecutor said it was useless to pursue the abuse charge because Ward was enlisted in the Navy and he was going to ship out soon. Nice. Nice. So <laughs> a year later, he was discharged because of his drinking and his dereliction of duty. But while being stationed in the Philippines, he met a woman named Maria Stout. And at 19, he moved to Portland with her. Maria was five months pregnant at the time, but it was not Ward's biological child. Then one night, Maria took herself to the hospital after Ward had assaulted her. He slapped her, pulled her hair, and slammed her head against the bedpost. So police were obviously called to the hospital that night. Ward was arrested, but ultimately Maria didn't cooperate, so the charges were dropped. By December of 1982, their son, Francis Weaver, was born. Soon after that, they got married and welcomed a second son, Alex, in 1984. And then Ward had yet another run-in with the law. One night in 1986, he went out to drink after arguing with Maria. Ward was outside of a bowling alley when his friend's two young daughters gave him a ride. During the ride, Ward needed to relieve himself, so he asked them to pull over so that he could pee on the side of the road. And as they complied, Ward suddenly opened the passenger side door and hit one of the girls with a piece of concrete. It's like exactly what his fucking dad did. Like yeah. bizarre. Yeah. He then put another girl in a headlock and pulled her to the floor of the car. He served three years behind bars for both assaults. Like, holy shit. Lock this man up, dude. Put him holy. down. So after he got out of prison for senselessly beating these girls, Ward and Maria had their daughter Mallory in 1989. But the family wouldn't stay together for long, in part because Ward started selling cocaine and meth. What a guy. Love this guy. Um, by 1993, Maria filed a restraining order against Ward and they got divorced. In 1995, Ward had a new girlfriend named Christy Sloan, who he beat with a cast iron skillet. Ward was arrested for that, but the charges were dropped because Christy would not testify against him because she feared him so much. The story just gets crazier and How crazier. is this guy, after doing this to these girls, like, how is he still out and about? Like, I am disgusted. This man is like the definition of a re repeat offender. He's so fucking dangerous. He's a sexual sadist predator. Like, what? It's so disgusting because, you know, if a woman was doing this to men, she'd be... <laughs> She get the she get well, the death like yeah. this is crazy. Uh, I don't. M women wouldn't do this to men. Yeah, Maybe women one don't women, in history, but yeah, we, yeah. It's just men do this, and it's really dark. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. 
Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. By 2001, Ward brought his family to Oregon City and rented a home on Beaver Creek Road near the apartment complex. And it's unclear how he ended up with custody of Mallory because he shouldn't have custody of anybody and the whole thing is just so fucked up. Well, side note, it's unclear what kind of abuse Maria would have suffered. And it's like, it's unclear whether she would have had the means to fight for custody. You know, so often these abusers, like there's financial abuse going on in the marriage and it's like all they can do is get away with their lives and they have no means to fight for their kids. It's disgusting. It should never happen. Right. But this man, how he ended up with custody of his daughter fucking baffles me. Insane. Given that he like beats girls. And just given that it's very hard for like the father to gain custody just as a baseline. Like it's insane. Yeah, it's fucked up. So the police are learning all about Ward's history in real time, right? As they're investigating the disappearance of Ashley. And clearly red flags are glaring here. 
And while they couldn't officially name him as a suspect in Ashley's disappearance, because there was no clear evidence tying him to Ashley at that time, they were certainly suspicious, right? And it's not hard to understand why. Without any promising leads, many in the area assumed that Ashley had just run off. Yeah. And I'm, okay. I always see that. And I'm like, yeah, 12-year-olds are just like going to go make it on their own. They're thrilled to just like go rough it on the streets. Yeah, don't look for them. Exactly. So this disappearance of this 12-year-old girl, Ashley, was lingering. You know, everyone was really disturbed by it. And they were trying to justify it. Like, maybe she's okay. Maybe she's gone. But that wasn't going to last long because the community was about to be shaken once again. On the morning of Friday, March 8th of 2002, the third friend in this best friend trio, Miranda, went missing. And the circumstances were chillingly similar to that of Ashley's. Miranda said goodbye to her mother the morning she had to go to school. She walked to the same bus stop, but the bus came and there was no sign of Miranda there. So the FBI immediately suspected the two disappearances were connected. Yeah, no shit. And that the person who did this knew both of the girls. Seems obvious. These are identical circumstances at an identical location, right in front of Ward Weaver III's house. After Miranda's disappearance, officials tied to the case announced a possible profile for the suspect they were looking for. They said it could be someone who sold a car recently or showed signs of drug and alcohol use, someone who changed their lifestyle, or anyone who looked tired from being awake the entire night before. So naturally, suspicion was very high on Ward once again. So first, Ward had sold his Camaro and removed the carpet floor bed. Sketchy as fuck. Yep. Another concerning thing was that he recently got upset with Miranda at Mallory's birthday party and witnesses saw it happen. Why would you be getting upset with a little girl? A child. Like, okay. So during the party, Miranda told another girl not to stay the night at Weaver's house because Ward had assaulted Ashley and it could happen to her too. When police interviewed Ward about the morning Miranda went missing, he said he was helping his daughter who was sick. But this wasn't true because Mallory, his daughter, was with her mother. He also failed a subsequent polygraph test. And why would he lie about that? Unsure, but Ward was definitely on everyone's radar. So now the two families with two victims who are best friends were pleading for both of their daughters' safe returns. Both mothers knew Ashley and Miranda would not run off or willingly get into someone's car. And Miranda's mother actually changed her answering machine message to say, Miranda, this is your mom, and I love you very, very much, and I want you to come home. And if this is someone who knows where she is, please bring her back, because I'll never stop looking for her. Around the time she went missing, Miranda was preparing to perform with her dance team that upcoming weekend. She was excited about this, so again, she wasn't just going to suddenly run away. And you know, when you're 12, that shit seems like the most important thing in the world. You know, like a dance recital you've been practicing for and you're excited for and you have a costume for. Like you're not going to just be like, I'm actually going to run away and disappoint my team. And it's just ridiculous. So the following week, a vigil was held for both girls. And classmates read poems saying, Ashley, please come home. And my best friend Miranda is gone. Four other families that lived in the same apartment complex ended up moving out because they were so worried about their own children. The community was shaken and other concerned parents in the area started walking their kids to their bus stops. So the news of both cases made national headlines, and both mothers appeared on morning talk shows. A billboard along the interstate highway showed a banner with Ashley and Miranda's faces on it, and the girls were featured on America's Most Wanted, which accrued more than 1,500 police tips. 
the dance's team fundraiser was now dedicated to both girls. So like Alexa said, Miranda was set to perform that solo dance, but now Miranda's older sister was going to fill in and perform Miranda's dance for her. Everyone in Oregon City was talking about the missing girls and were terrified that their children could be next. And there was also someone else talking as well, Ward Weaver, the main suspect himself. Ward was talking to anyone, including the media, and saying that he was being treated as the prime suspect in the cases, which was not technically true, because remember, they hadn't even publicly named a suspect yet. By this point, Ward had even called his half-brother in Idaho, telling him that investigators were tapping his phones and following his vehicle and asking him to confess to something he quote-unquote didn't do. Sounds like Wardy boy is getting paranoid. Yeah. And we're not sure if any of those claims are true or not, but the police were definitely watching him. So maybe it's not paranoia. Maybe it's just fucking reality. Ward also said the reason police were looking into him was because of their father, Ward Jr., who was a convicted killer. That was also true, but it's not the only reason. His own rape convictions and violence against young women is really why they suspected him. And Ward didn't stop there. He eventually spoke to K2 News, and this is what he said. They're not real sure. Um, no, and during that time, no, I wasn't at work. I was here. Um, getting up at 8, you know, my daughter would wake me up at 8. I'd watch her catch the bus, which comes at 8.20, um, get in the shower. And, up, you know, it's a 12-minute drive from Clackamas, so it didn't, from here to Clackamas, if I don't hit any traffic down here at this light. Um, so, no. I was here, but uh, time frame doesn't make it anything feasible. You know, and the fact that the FBI are throwing both of these cases, you know, into someone took them both, is like okay, fine. You know, I don't see it that way, and I would really not like to think that someone took Miranda, um, either girl actually. But uh, I'm, I know, you know, well, I don't have anything to do with what's going on. But my gut instinct is Ashley's off somewhere where she would rather be than home. He also went on Good Morning America saying that he was like a father figure to Ashley and added that Ashley's mother did not care about her. What a nice guy. Soon after that, he told the media that he was moving to Idaho, Washington, or Mexico because the FBI would not leave him alone. Ugh, so annoying. Poor guy. Poor guy. Obviously, everything was pointing to Ward as the main suspect, but without tangible evidence, there wasn't much the police could do with their suspicions alone. Then a month later, there was a big break in the case. Police got a call from Francis Weaver. This is Ward's son. So Francis was calling to report that his father had assaulted Francis's girlfriend. During the attack, the girlfriend ran out of the house naked until a random driver found her and took her to safety. Like, is this guy for fucking real? Dude, holy shit. She told authorities Ward raped her and then tried to choke her. But that wasn't all Francis told the police. Ward had recently told his son Francis that he had been the one to kill Ashley and Miranda. Francis added that Ward said he killed Ashley, quote, because she deserved it, but there was really no reason for killing Miranda. Wow. So what a putrid fucking monster. Like, I don't even, Mm -hmm. I'm speechless. So naturally the police have to act now. Um, this guy's unfucking stoppable. Like after doing this, he then tries to rape his son's girlfriend. Like get this guy off the fucking streets already. And now finally they had what they needed to move on this ward fucking weaver monster. He was arrested for one count of rape and sexual abuse to Francis's girlfriend. And he was held on $1 million bail due to being a flight risk. And with ward behind bars, detectives had some time to follow through 
with a potential homicide investigation for both Ashley and Miranda. So in the days following Ward's arrest, the surrounding community was already convinced that he was the killer. Ashley's family put up signs on Ward's property that read, Here lies Ashley Pond and dig me up. But were they right? Were Ashley and Miranda somewhere at Ward's home? And if so, that would be the key evidence needed to convict Ward and lock him up so he could never hurt anybody again. So along with the FBI, police executed a search warrant at the house. And sadly, on the first day of the search, they found Miranda's remains stuffed in a microwave box in the storage shed. The second day, they found Ashley's remains in a 55-gallon barrel that was buried under a concrete slab in the backyard. And that concrete had been recently poured back in March. And Ward said he was planning on putting a jacuzzi on top of it. But this is crazy because it's really, really similar to his father's murders. Ward's father had also buried his victim under a concrete slab in his backyard as well. I just wonder if it's conscious or subconscious, you know, like I, know. I don't, it's so weird. And also his father um, attacked that couple on the side of the road. And then Ward the third attacked the two girls on the side of the road. It's just like, are you, is he trying to emanate his father or is it just so deep in their blood that like, they just both do things like this? Yeah. I don't know. And like, are you so unself-aware like, if it were me, I'd be like, this feels like deja vu. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Right. And maybe he just doesn't care. It's like, I'm a piece of shit and proud. I don't know. But these people terrify me. <sighs> um, and we're looking at, you know, photos of this storage shed and where this concrete slab was. And it's just like, these are 12-year-old children, you know? And it's just chilling that they were treated as disposable. I mean, they were abused before they were killed by other male figures. It's just like, it's unacceptable. Um, unacceptable. Whatever culture is allowing this pervasive abuse of children, I want no fucking part of it, but here I am, you know? And I, stories like this just make me feel lucky that I wasn't fucking killed. I know. Which we all deserve to be alive, you know? It's crazy. So Ward was charged with two counts of aggravated murder and abuse of a corpse. In addition, he was charged with attempted aggravated murder and rape of his son's girlfriend. In a plea bargain, Ward pleaded guilty to two of the charges in exchange for avoiding the death penalty, which don't spare this fucking man. I mean, I don't don't spare this man the death penalty. Spare like no different people, you know. He was given two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. In 2009, Miranda's younger sister visited Ward in prison to ask him what happened. I mean, I guess she wanted answers. And he met with her and told her that he killed both girls with his bare hands. What was even more shocking is that Ward told the younger sister that he was planning to kill her too. Holy shit. What the fuck? I don't need, I'm speechless. So we mentioned how the Weaver men were violent dating back three different generations. So that continued to the fourth. In 1998, Ward's son Francis was suspended from school after he choked a student. In 1999, Francis shot a rifle at a truck full of teenagers in Idaho. And one of the people injured was his best friend. Francis was convicted of aggravated assault and served about a month in a juvenile facility. In 2005, Ward's other son, Alex, pleaded guilty to attempted assault after hitting a man with a rubber mallet. What is happening? So sad. Alex served two years behind bars and three years supervised. Then in 2014, now 31 years old, Francis was arrested for shooting a man along with two other men. 
Police say that all three planned to steal 15 pounds of marijuana from the victim. When the robbery didn't go as planned, one of the men said that he shot the victim twice in the head. So in the end, Francis was sentenced to life. My God. You know, we thank Angie for submitting this story. Um, It's a sobering reminder to everyone that danger could be lurking anywhere. And it also perfectly demonstrates how violence and abuse is handed down generationally. But even more so, like people who become parents need to take their own trauma and abuse seriously. And they need to commit to not fuck, like quitting that cycle is your responsibility. Yeah. It's the parent's responsibility to make sure your kid doesn't become violent because you're violent. Like, and if you're not up for that, don't fucking have kids. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. You have to take the responsibility seriously because it's like, I can't, I cannot believe especially in this concentra- concentrated story that every single adult in this story was an abhorrent, horrible person. Yeah. And just the pervasiveness of the abuse that Ashley suffered. I mean, three adult figures in her life, her two parental male figures and this man down the street sexually assaulted her. This is three men by 12. Like, and we don't even know what Mallory Ward Weaver's own daughter suffered. I mean, yeah, living with her father, living with a man capable of this depraved indifference towards 12-year-old girls, like how important do you think she was to him? I mean, I can't even imagine her experience. I'm going to end this episode reading a little bit of the email that Angie had written to us because I think it's interesting. She said, well, I didn't know the victims directly, them being in my age range and the murder happening across the street from our local grocery store. It affected me and made me more cautious and aware that there was more to life than the little bubble I was raised in. And that isn't always a good thing. 